Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk with creative Mississippians. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes, with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talk to, talking with Dr. Ihioma Nwachupu. Ihioma is an assistant professor of English in the Mississippi University for Women's Department of Languages, Literature, and Philosophy, and teaches in the MFA Creative Writing Program there. Originally from Nigeria, he has received writing fellowships from the Michener Center for Writers at the University of Texas, Austin, the Chinua Achibe Center at Bard College, and Florida State University. Ihioma's fiction has been published widely in literary magazines and has earned a Pushcart Prize special mention and a Best American Short Stories notable mention. Welcome, Ihioma. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First off, I want to say congratulations because you are one of this year's recipients of the Arts Commission's highly competitive Literary Artist Fellowship. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. And I, I do want to mention for any artists listening that um, the fellowship is offered each year to a limited number of, of grants for Mississippi-based artists in various categories. And we'll open that application period up again in February. So just had to put in a plug about that. Um, but now I want to uh, jump in. And if you could tell us about your work and the kind of stories and subjects that interest you as a writer. Hey, so I, um, I write basically literary fiction. Um, my stories are, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in hierarchies, in relationships, uh, in families, um, complex you know, relationships, because every human being is complex. And I look for those complexities and mind those com complexities in my fiction. So that's the kind of fiction I'm, I'm interested in writing. And it's also the sort of fiction I look uh, for when, when, I'm, you know, when I'm looking for something to read. Um, so usually, you know, uh, I'm, I'm constantly reading fiction um, on the internet. Um, sometimes I would read the New Yorker, and it's it's and it's nice to have those uh, stories that are read out by by the writer, so you could lie in bed at night and basically just have that you know um, like on my phone. So I'll listen to that um, at night. So basically, constantly, I'm always um, read uh, listening to fiction, reading fiction. Um, so that's that about like the sort of fiction that I'm interested in writing. And so fiction that I'm um, that I listen to, but I also there's a component of my fiction which isn't really like you wouldn't find a lot of literary fiction writers doing magical realism, you know, and magical realism, which I hesitate to call it magical realism, because where I come from, that's just realism, you know, 
stories about like, I don't know, um, you may have people in the house and someone just, you know, they open their window, they see a bat and they're like, oh my God, that's probably my neighbor who's trying to cast a hex on me. Wow. Now, if someone said that here in the U.S., they'd be like, oh, maybe they're off their meds. Or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you might be like, oh, maybe they're, they're paranoid that they're seeing things. But if someone said that in Nigeria, you'd be like, damn, you need to go to church. <laughs> or you, or you, you probably need to move out. Um, so that and uh, a belief in the supernatural not just in the supernatural as some kind of theoretical you know, concept or a possibility, but in the supernatural as a part of the natural world. Mm-hmm. You know, people in Nigeria believe in, you know, that there is a physical and, and then there is, you know, the supernatural and they both interact in the same space. That's fascinating. And um, I do, I want to dive more into your writing too. But first, um, if we can start at, at the beginning, your, your roots um, growing up in Nigeria, could you tell us about your childhood and um, if you were drawn to writing at a young age? When I was young, I, I loved poetry. So poetry was the first thing that I you know, that I was drawn to. So I read all of the, you know, the little books of, of poetry that were available um, to us kids then um, over and over and over. But perhaps the strongest influence on my writing is the fact that when, because I went to school really early. I started going to school probably when I was three or four mm. because um, my mom was going to school. My dad would go to work. And then my cousin who lived with us would also be, was also going to school. So there was no one to look after me at home. So I had to go to school, even though I wasn't quite, you know, at the age where I was it's supposed to be like in, in first grade. You know, I mean, think of like a three-year-old, a three-year-old in first grade. Yeah, which is, tiny. Which is, why, <laughs> which is why I failed that year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but one thing I remember from um, that time is how at recess, all of the kids would sit on the grass, would, would gather on the grass, and um, they would start telling stories. But, you know, I was not from, because I wasn't from that part of Nigeria, I, I was not conversant with some sort because they were exploiting a literary culture that, you know, every Yoruba, person knew and I didn't know it was it was this idea of this idea called the fabu Mm. fabu is basically you know you're making up you know stories it was like a literary tradition it is a literary tradition with the Yoruba people in Nigeria so at three years old I didn't know this Uh, so we would sit and all of these kids were like five you know some of them were like four they're much bigger so we'll sit on the grass and they will start telling these stories about like, oh yeah, I was in a helicopter. And then I saw this and I, and I jumped down from the helicopter on top of this, this elephant and, and I killed this elephant and I, and, I, and I took the meat home to my parents and they cooked it. And I'm sitting there saying, wow. This, Did this, you, were you taking that literally too? Yes, I did yeah. think, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm three. 
you know, so, so I'm thinking they actually did this thing, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so when, when the first person to tell the st- a story would finish, you know, the next person, you know, in line would, would then tell the story. When they got to me, I'll be like, nope, I uh, don't have any such story. Uh, and then they move on to the next person. When I found out that they were making up the tales was when this kid was like really small like me. He said something like, you know, I lifted up the helicopter and then, you know, I, and, and, I, and, I, and I told these guys who were like Boy Scouts to come and help me. And, you know, and then I drove a car and I'm like, there is no way he did it, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, so then I realized they were making up the stories and I started making up my stories too. So you grew up with a really strong oral storytelling tradition. When did you start write, you know, when did you decide to start writing those stories that you were making up down on paper? I mean, um, I would say, I mean, first, like I said, I, I, um, I fell in love with poetry. I started writing poetry at a really young age. So I was writing poems. Um, but I think it was not until I got into college. Uh, that was when I started actually writing fiction because I respect, I was so, I respected fiction a lot. You know, I knew that I had a tendency to write narrative poems. So that was what alerted me to the fact that you're actually a fiction writer who's mm-hmm. writing poetry. You know, all of my, all of my poems were very, you know, I would write this huge, long narrative poems when it was time to, you know, start writing my first um, story. It sort of came naturally mm-hmm. because I felt like I had had a lot of practice with the narrative poems I was writing. And also it was really important that I was, I was reading a lot. Yeah, You know, I would go to the library, you know, when I was like 11 and 12, and I would just spend time there reading. You know, uh, one of the books that I remember reading that I really fell in love with as a 12-year-old kid was a, a, story, a book titled A Supernatural Story for Boys. So I loved that book. You know, I would you know, go back to it every day in the afternoon when it was time for recess. In fact, I loved reading so much. My best friend, when I was 12, in school, we fought in the library over a book. Because oh I, I was reading the same book he was reading. So um, usually what, what I would do was, and this book was titled, um, I think it's, it was called uh, Souza, S-O-U-Z-A. Um, so the Adventures of Souza by uh, a Nigerian um, writer. So every time I finished, you know, with the book, I would hide it. I wouldn't put it back on the shelf. I would go hide it in like say the geography section <laughs> or, or I would hide it underneath the shelf, you know, so that I would, co- so I could come back to it the next day. But usually every time I came back the next day, the librarian had moved it, they found the book and they had moved it to the correct spot. I was going to say, I'm sure the librarians loved that, that you were doing that. <laughs> you know? So this one time I, uh, I showed up in the library and my friend was reading it and then we got into a fight, you know, and then they had to throw us out of the library. <laughs> so I was, because I was reading a lot, um, and the, the first thing I feel like the, you, you, 
the, your first instinct as a reader who's going to be a writer is you start to figure out the plot. You know, like before something happens, you know, you know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. You know, you fall in love with characters, you know, what they do. And then when you go home and you sleep, you dream about these characters. Um, writing, I, I believe, you know, it's a very sensual art, but it's also very um, connected to dreaming. You know, when you write fiction, especially when I write fiction, I'm not thinking as much as dreaming. Hmm. It's not like a, and I say this consciously as a person who used to play chess a long time. So, you know, I, I was doing that like a very logical part of my brain, right? But But when I write fiction, I detach from that part of myself to sort of dream um, and write things that are improbable just because I feel it. I talk a lot about rhythm in fiction being the thing that drives my fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, you read something, you, you know, you're writing something as you're writing, you're reading it, you're feeling a rhythm, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's, it's that rhythm that dictates where that story goes. And that rhythm is sort of like lulling you into a dream state, basically. So you're, you know, writing in that in that dream space. And that's interesting that you also like to listen to your fiction being read aloud because I think that rhythm comes a lot from reading it aloud and, and imagining it being read to, to you aloud as you're reading it as well. Um, well, I, I wanna come back to the chess piece, but, but first I just wanna ask you how, how you came to the US and, and why you decided to come to the US to pursue your creative writing how did that how did that come up for you i uh so this happened many years ago probably in 2000 i'd say 2007 i met um a wonderful man called uh biavanga wainana um who's a who was a kenyan writer he uh he was on the faculty the year that i attended uh, a fiction workshop um, in Nigeria. And so he, I met him there, you know, he fell in love with my writing, we became friends. And then um, I got my fellowship through him, the Chino Achebe Center Fellowship. And um, from there, I worked with the, um, the Chino Achebe Center um, when I was working on my applications to come to the US. It basically paid for everything. And they paid my flights to the U.S. when I um, I got into the mission center. So I mean I I knew absolutely nothing about MFA programs. So you know I, I was outside of that loop. You know I was just a person who was writing fiction in Nigeria who actually absolutely knew nothing about the opportunities out there until I was introduced to that or made aware of that by Biavanga um, Wainar. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. (laughs) 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today, I am talking with fiction writer and professor of English and creative writing, Ihyoma Nwachuku. All right, before the break, we were talking about um, how your writing brought you to the United States. Um, and before, you had also mentioned that you are a chess player. What you failed to mention was you are a professional chess player. Um, can you tell us a- about that chapter of your life and, and how your experience as a chess player now shows up in your work as a fiction writer? So I played, I played professional chess in Nigeria for 10, 10 years. Um, I, during that time, I mean, I won a couple of tournaments, which was nice. Um, I'm back in college, I was on the school chess team, which was also great um, to have the university pay for me to go somewhere because we'll go, you know, play tournaments mm-hmm. for the school. Um, back then, my, my parents, of course, they didn't, especially my dad didn't want me playing chess because, you know, chess is very intensive um, and, you know, it, it competes with anything. One of the reasons I stopped playing chess was because I just couldn't play chess and write fiction. Mm. You know, it's either, you know, I write fiction and live chess or play chess and write fiction. And also it was almost like, I didn't feel like I could improve better than I had, you know, in playing chess. Um, and, and chess can be really intensive, but when I used to play professionally, I would pre- pre- prepare for tournaments, you know, by first, um, playing on the computer. So, you know, playing with computer personalities. Um, I was playing back in those days. So this is like 2005, I think. I'll be playing, uh, I'll play a computer program called Chess Master, like the strongest. Hmm. So I, I would play the computer, you know, every day. And I was, I was beating the computer at this time, you know. Basically, you know, be, I play 10 games with the computer, beat the computer 10 times. I was I wasn't playing like a human being. I was playing like you know, yeah, like a computer program, which you have to consider when you're playing a human being. So when you finally end up going to a tournament, you have to adjust to playing human beings because you're reading expressions. You know, you can't see the computer's face because when the computer loses, it doesn't frown. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So that psychological component is really essential when you play tournament chess, right? So you're, you're playing the computer that you can't see, and then, you know, you beat the computer and that's fine. And then you go and play a human being that you can see who's making noises, who's making faces, and that affects, that can affect you and, and make you lose the game, even though you might be stronger than that player. It's almost like poker. Right, yes. So I would, uh, so I would, I would study, uh, I would play this, computer personalities, I would make up a tournament with varying strengths. Um, we would uh, play a player like um, Anderson, who's an attacking player, uh, Paul Murphy, um, 
play uh, Kasparov. They, they were all players that had different qualities. So we play like a mock tournament. Uh, um, and I, would, I had books that I was reading. So I would read, um, so that's another component of preparing for a tournament. I was reading these books while playing. So while I'm reading these books, I'm playing classical music. Hmm. Right. And so preparation was like, and I kid you not, about say 12 hours every day, you know, just preparing. Wow. Um, and then after that, you know, on the day of, uh, of the tournament, I would uh, listen to Tupac on my iPod when I was, you know, heading to go play the tournament to, to psych me up. Mm -hmm. So I did that. Those, those were like things that I did um, to prepare. I, I also made a, a drink. Like it was like, for me, it was like a secret drink. Because <laughs> when you play, um, like a, a tournament game is about three hours. Right? So you have one and a half hours your opponent has one and a half hours. You expend a lot of energy just sitting in one place. This one time I played a tournament and I was sweating like I had taken a swim in a river. Hmm. And I've been sitting in one place for three hours. So I made this drink, it was um, vitamin C and glucose together. So that I would drink as I was playing um, the, the tournament. So, you know, I, I wanted to take care of like that energy aspect well, you know, having taking taking care of the other aspects of you know um, preparing for uh, the ton a tournament. So, what is the influence of that on my fiction? There's a lot of discipline that comes with you know playing chess. Mm -hmm. There are rules that you keep to as you play chess. Um, doing that constantly, um, but in the actual game itself. There is, there is a rhythm to that. In fact, a chess game is, a, is divided um, into the opening, the middle, and the ending. Same way as a short story. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of map the rhythm of a chess game onto a story. But, you know, just in terms of like, rhythm, which is why I talk about rhythm a lot, is yeah. that's the thing that, that sort of connects chess to fiction writing for me. Also, um, Nabokov, you know, said, you know, famously uh, that when you when you're, um, when you play chess and write, in chess, there's something called creative deception. And is that it is that creative deception that you can sort of map onto your fiction writing, right? You know, the where it feels like you're going, you're going this way, but you're actually going that way. Ah, okay. Right, so that sort of thing is useful, that that, that ability to, you know, cause that's, that happens a lot in in, in chess where you, you you appear to be going this way, but you know, the way you've, you've prepared your pieces, you've prepared them to go a certain way, but it, it's, it's not really clear from the beginning where that way is. So like when you're writing fiction, you know, uh, John Updike, you know, he said, when you write, when you write fiction in the beginning, you, you come into the story with a rough idea of, you know, the beginning, the middle and the end, but you are not married to, to those, <laughs> you know, those points, right? But right. then that's what you come into the, um, into the story with, right? And so with creative deception, 
you can sort of move along in the story knowing that you're going to a certain place. You can sense that place. You don't actually know what that place is, mm-hmm. right? It's also what, you know, my friend and mentor, um, um, Bob Butler, uh, you know, um, would, what he says about the, the dream space writing coming out of your white heart center, hmm. you know? It is in the sense that you really, sort of like in a dream, you really don't know what you're doing. Do you sort of know what you're doing, right? It's sort of like, you know, groping your way through a story, even though you might sort of like sense through some kind of radar where you're going. If that, that's sort of like complicated, complex stuff. But, but I think all writers understand, you know, what I'm saying, you know, where it's not like you've mapped out, you've mapped out the entire story. Chapter one, this is what's going to happen. You don't know. Right. You sort of know, but don't know. Right, and I feel like creative deception helps you, you know, sort of move through um, that sort of space where you can sort of guide yourself without guiding yourself, if that makes sense. It, it does. And um, one thing after reading a number of your stories that I've really, I've come to recognize as a common thread that I, I find fascinating is that the protagonists, the people that you're writing about are often caught in the middle of warring impulses and they're often sort of morally ambiguous characters. And when you're reading, you often, your impulse is to identify with the protagonist. And so I found myself wanting to empathize with someone who is, for example, in one of your stories called Urban Gorilla, he's taking advantage of a man who is paralyzed from the waist down. And so it's like, how can you empathize with a, a character that's doing awful things? But um, can you talk a little bit about your choice to write about these complicated human beings? So I, I feel like, you know, I mean, I write, you're right, I write about transgressive characters. You know, I find them very interesting and very complicated. You know, um, I constantly read, um, like I'll go to Yahoo, I read the news, you know, you know, about what people are doing. And usually like when I read about a transgressive character, someone who's done something bad, it is what really interests me is their motivations and like how they try to justify Mm-hmm. whatever I find it really interesting and you know sometimes funny I'm like really you know <laughs> yeah you know? there's humor in it often yeah <laughs> yeah so so when I write my stories and these characters do these things I'm also like really dude really you know and then and then I like you know I go on and 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 and, and write you know whatever the character is going to do so I'm interested in transgressive characters because they're very interesting. I'm writing about the things that interest me, right? And, you know, I just find them, you know, I guess more interesting than other types of people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's that's just, you know, that's that's it. Um, I mean, I've been asked this question um, in the past and I'm not sure I've been this articulate in answering um, the, you know, this, this this type of questions, but like that's why I'm, I'm I'll be forever interested in these characters, and I'll be forever writing about characters like this. I find them really interesting. 
And so you said you find stories on on Yahoo News. Um, are are those typically, you know, like a, you read a news story that sparks an imagine an unimagined story? Not just Yahoo. Um, all all kinds of news sites, you know, blogs, you know, Reddit, you know. Um, um, I'm there just, you know, being interested in what what people are saying, what what what's going on. Um, there's a story that I had published in a magazine called Eclectica, I think probably 10 years ago. Um, this story was sort of, I read something that I just found improbable. So some dude, I mean, listen carefully, some dude had been called on the phone by a spirit Oh and this, this, so this happened in Nigeria. So this dude was called on the phone by a spirit or someone, you know, purporting to be a spirit. And this spirit says, go to, I don't know, say Main Street, for instance, go to Main Street by the gas station and leave a bag containing a hundred thousand, say, dollars. If you do not do that, I will destroy you. And I kid you not, this guy did it. So, you oh. know, he went to like a bush and he left some money, right? Um, and this happened in, in the north of Nigeria. So this dude thought he was speaking to a jinn, like a spirit. Oh my goodness. Right? And the, the only reason he stopped was like his cousin said, dude, no. <laughs> Clearly a scam. <laughs> yes. And so that sparked for me, uh, sparked the story, the story that, that was then published. Um, in 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 eclectic titled the I think it's titled the hundred thousand year old spirits, you know. So because the spirit that was speaking to the man was like, you know, I'm a hundred thousand years old, you know, uh, and respect me and listen to me. Um, where so in this story that I wrote, this uh, this dude was, um, if I if I remember clearly, he was this dude was in the police was um pretending to be um some sort of spirit who's you know giving um communications to someone who he wanted to scam so like from the very beginning my stories have been about you know people um taking advantage of people people who are you know compromised morally but i feel like it just shows us people like that People who are very compromised in that way shows us the, just the very fickle nature of humanity, of you know how mm -hmm. we are at, at, at our very basis, right? And, and I feel like you know those like examples of they allow us to see uh, ourselves as you know um, people who have been on this earth and who basically you know we struggle with these things all the time we're very complicated right and some of the things that we have done as human beings different human beings we might not tell like the next person on the bus or even our friends our darkest secrets so i feel like when people read my stories they're like mm, i've done something close to that and it's right. kind of easy to um identify with these characters because these characters show us how we feel as human beings at being our better selves. Right. Um, I, or they remind me a lot of, of Flannery Court, Flannery uh, O'Connor short fiction as well. Um, right.
Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes from the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with Ihioma Nwachuku about his writing and creative influences. So, Ihioma, you've now been teaching at the W in Columbus. How long have have you been in Columbus? How long have you been teaching there? So, I, uh, I think I came to Columbus last year, July. So... This July I made it one year, and then August made it. Uh, this August makes it one year that I've been teaching at the, um, MUW. And how how has your adjustment to Mississippi been so far? I mean, it's not like in terms of adjustment, it's not like I moved from the north to the south. I've been in the south throughout my time in the U.S. Because you, know, you were in Florida previously, right? Yes, okay. I was in Florida. So the the adjustment was not that huge, you know, but I did have to sort of get used to the way certain words are pronounced here. It was sort of like, you know, just certain things. Um, th- that's what I had to, I guess, sort of struggle with my f- probably first couple of months um, here, but I mean, in terms of everything else, you know, Walmart is Walmart, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, there was, was nothing, you know, more that I, I felt that, that I had to like, you know, um, get used to. And like for my kids, my kids had to, um, you know, they've been, they, they were born in the South. Uh, my first son speaks, you know, all of his, the way he pronounces words are like very southern. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so he didn't have, I mean, he would, you know, they would say man. He said like, I would say man, but they would say uh-huh. man. The dad, the daddy, <laughs> daddy, who's that man? <laughs> <laughs> so just for them, it wasn't, that wasn't like that huge um, adjustment, um, you know, that they had to make. Um, so it's been, you know, as far as I'm concerned, seamless. You know, I'm really the, happy to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. The the I mean, so I mean, here in Florida, I had to deal with hurricanes. Right. But but here, you know, the tornadoes have not been as scary as the hurricanes in Florida, because I mean, the, those hurricanes would change your entire life. You're during right. that period, your day, you'd have to move your furniture around the house flooding everywhere you lose power um so yeah it's been you know 
the outside the weather is milder down mm-hmm. here than, than in Tallahassee, Florida. Well, and you described uh, Nigeria, where you grew up as, uh, as an insanely religious country. And I could say the same thing about Mississippi. Have you found parallels between where you grew up and um, where, you know, living in Mississippi now? In terms of like religion, um, so just a couple of days ago, I was pulling up to go pick up my kids from school and I was looking at these cars that had stickers on the back of them. You know, just, and they had stickers like, Jesus loves you, um, you know, God loves you, you know, car after car. And I was just thinking to myself, this just reminds me of home, mm. you know, just in terms of like, how connected people are to religion yeah you know uh, yeah so so in terms of that i've seen um accents that remind me of um of home um so yeah there i don't know I, i'll also I'll probably say the way that people you know smile at you as you're walking you know along the road how people are eager to so like interact mm-hmm. you know like complete strangers that's the way in Nigeria that we relate to each other. You know, people talk to you, strangers. The only problem is that, you know, here in the US, people are very alert to their own personal space. Right. So, what, even while being friendly here so in, in Mississippi, people are still really very, you know, aware of like their space. Whereas like, if you got on the bus in Nigeria, you, you have people shoving their, you know, the elbows into, uh-huh. into your chest, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and so the first time I went back to Nigeria in, in 2012, I got on the bus and uh, someone standing in the aisle who was carrying a bag and he very gently set that bag on the seat that I was sitting on. Which so would be on your lap? No, but like you know, oh. you know, like oh. if, you, if you sit in a in a in a in a chair, that's like a little space. Oh, okay. Right. So he just set it down there, you know, and uh, I sort of had like this reverse culture shock because right. I'm like, you know, I've been in the U.S. for like you know maybe a year now, and this would never happen, and, uh-huh. and you know, so like before then, say in 2010, I about I looked at him like you know, yeah, that's that's fine, but then I you know. I came back, I, I, I just come back from the US. I look at him, I'm like, dude, you need to move that <laughs> bag. And he moved it, <laughs> you know? So those sort of interactions that we have where people get into your personal space in Nigeria, those might be things that I might say are missing, you know, in Mississippi, even though um, there are other aspects that remind me of home. Well, and I also find it fascinating that both Nigeria and Mississippi have produced quite a number of world-renowned fiction writers. Um, And going back to how you were talking about, you know, the oral storytelling culture among children, you know, when you were growing up, um, oral storytelling culture is very strong here in the South as well. Um, But do you, I'm, I'm curious if you have any theories as to why uh, Mississippi and Nigeria have so many writers. They put so many writers into the world. I, I mean, I guess if I if I knew that, I'd probably be a millionaire. Write a, <laughs> write a book 
<laughs> about it because I think it's it's really interesting, you know. Uh, but I mean, I I haven't really thought about that. I guess probably the next time that we have a conversation, I'll have an answer yeah. for you about what what might be the influences. But I feel like in a, if a place has been under a lot of pressure, you know, um, social economic, those kind of places tend to produce, you know, art that allows people, because art can be cathartic, you know, mm-hmm. allows people to sort of um, get out of the pressure of living in a, in a place like that, you know, where the forces of history have moved in different ways and pressurized and put people under a lot of pressure. And so you have arts coming out as sort of a way for people to breathe, you know, and to get out of like their, um, their real lives and get transported you know, into art as a way to sort of, you know, momentarily escape the physical world. Mm-hmm. So that might be, you know, a reason. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> oh, I, I agree. I think that's, yeah. I think that's a fantastic answer. I, I, there's so many, there's, you know, the aspect of history and complicated and traumatic histories that, you know, need to be worked out in stories as well. Um, I, there's this quote I love by Eudora Welty, and, and since you're now teaching at the W, Welty's alma mater, uh, one place comprehended helps us understand other places better. And um, in, in your work, you know, we've talked a little about your character motivations and the transgressive characters you find fascinating, but I've also noticed that um, setting is so um, clearly painted and you 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 capture all these really specific details in your stories. Uh, what what aspects of place capture your attention and that um, interest you when you're when you're working on a piece of fiction or or any piece of writing? I love how people interact with a place because you know if say people live close to the water. Right, you find that their proverbs, their metaphors start to come out of the water. Mm. So that there's always that cross-pollination of people with place, you know? So that I find really interesting. And, and of course, one of the markers for place is uh, cuisine, what people eat. Right. Right. So um, I'm also really very interested in that. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, so like the way that people build their houses because uh, when you build a house in a specific place, you're responding to that place. You know, like in Tibet, for instance, where, you know, the gla- the, the, um, the topography is rocky, you, the house that you build has to respond to that landscape. So the way, so, so architecture always responds to landscape. Um, and that I find interesting. Um, human beings respond to, you know, natural factors. So like if, you people live in a place where you know they have a lot of earthquakes. You will see that you know part of the India India uh, lingo that the, that thing that they face the the um, the natural misfortunes that they face would sort of find their way into the lingo. So so this sort of interplay of uh, language and place and weather and architecture and landscape 
is one thing that I find really interesting and I try as much as I can to replicate in my fiction. Thank you. That's um, that's fascinating. Have you found just living now in in Florida, Texas, and now Mississippi has uh, have those places influenced your work at all? I it's you know it's it's I think I write really well about Nigeria because I, I you know I haven't been to Nigeria uh, in a long time. It's like being able, if you're like part of a painting, you you really can see that painting until say you step out of that painting and then and then you look back. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, inside of me, stories have a long gestation period, and and I, I really can't you know shepherd how that happens, right? But I'm sure that at some point, you know, there there. Of course, there are aspects of you know um, these places that that find a way into fiction, right. but they're just slowly creeping into my stories. It could be like, oh, this dude called from Texas, and you know, and then he said this, right? Or uh, this dude in Florida. Said, oh, I think no, I have a story that was published in Crazy Horse, where the girl was from Mississippi, and this was like published about a couple of years ago, before I came to Mississippi, the girl was, uh, it, the story's titled To You Americans. So so this girl from Mississippi was living in Canada uh, and he meets this Nigerian, this young Nigerian in Canada. And then they move from uh, Canada to, to Tallahassee, Florida, hmm. right? But her, then while they're living in Tallahassee, her parents, I think they drive down from Mississippi to come um, to come see them. So, so yes, so Mississippi has found its way into my fiction even before I came to Mississippi. It was a it was a premonition that you were going to end up here. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about the the projects that you're working on now? So right now I'm I'm working on. Um, a novel, right? So a short story and a novel, but like not at the same time. The novel is sort of in the dream space, but like I have allocated like psychic resources to the novel, so I know it's, it's happening. So you know, it's like you know, before you do anything in the physical, you make sure you've done it in the spiritual, right? So like spiritually, I've I've done that novel. It's 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 done. I just haven't done it in the physical, so. I'm committed to that novel. But right now, uh, I'm working on a short story uh, that's set in an island in East Africa called Zanzibar, uh, called Zanzibar which is an island off of um, the coast of Tanzania in, in, um, in East Africa. So that's what, what I'm working on. I've been working on it for like, uh, I'm almost ashamed to say I've been working on it for probably too long but as soon as it's done I'm moving on um to the novel well I cannot wait to read anything else that you have to write um thank you so much Dr. Ihioma Natruku for joining us today and thank you everyone to listening for the to the Mississippi Arts Hour thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast MPB depends on support from listeners so if you can please contribute today at mpbonline.org Dot org.
look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together.